Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, titled, Update in Cardiocerebral Resuscitation. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Gordon Yui from the University of Arizona. So who needs to learn this? Well, if you're a physician, if you're a nurse, if you're a caregiver of children, if you live in a swimming pool or on a beach anywhere, you probably ought to learn this. But to go and try to teach everybody in the United States and recertify them every two years is the most cost-ineffective approach I've ever heard. So there's no data that improves survival. And then you get multiple rescuers, and you end up with a major problem of delays from intubation and hyperventilation. AEDs, of course, they work fine in the electrical phase, the first four or five minutes of ventricular arrest. They don't work in the circulatory phase because the heart has used up its activity. So of these three phases, in the first phase, all you need to do is defibrillate. So ICDs are effective, AEDs are effective, and early EMS arrival is effective. Where's the safest place to have cardiac arrest? In the casinos. (laughs) Those little half-moon things, you think they're for decorations? You are being videoed all the time, including the restroom, until you close the door. They know exactly what you're doing. And what they noted is when somebody collapsed there, that the security guards were there way before the paramedics from Las Vegas. So Lonnie Clark and Terry Vanzuela taught them how to use AEDs. And we used to have a video that we could show you about this, but the casinos won't let us show you anymore because what they're doing is sitting there gambling and somebody collapses over there and they continue gambling uh, (laughs) away. And then pretty soon the paramedics arrive and they're ripping the shirt off and gambling away. (laughs) And then they shock the person. He sits up and there's sweat all over him. They come in and they put him on a thing and reel him away. And then gambling away. (laughs) So 74% the first three minutes, 49% for three minutes after that. But the problem is after the electrical phase... The heart is using up all of its energy, and you shock it then, and you don't get. In fact, what used to happen is the paramedics would get there. They would intubate. You've all seen it. Wait, wait, hold, what, just a minute? And then they would put on the AED, and it would kill the patient. And the reason it killed the patient is because it'd say, stand back, don't touch patient, analyzing, analyzing, stand back, don't touch patient, Stand back, don't touch patient, delivering shock. Stand back, don't touch patient, analyzing. And just about the time it's going to tell you to start pressing on the chest, they refibrillate. Stand back, don't touch patient. Nobody survived. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a simple, acceptable way of extending the electrical phase? Well, it turns out there is. If you put the heart in a Langendorf preparation and perfuse it, It'll fibrillate for hours. The longest I've ever seen a patient fibrillate was 10 days. Copeland transplanted uh, guy came back in with a rejection. We didn't have a new heart, so they put in bivads. 
And then he fibrillated, and they tried to shock him with the bivads. Well, you know, the current's just going to go through the metal. So they shocked him several times, and he's still in fibrillation. So they just left him in fibrillation because he was uh, perfusing through the uh, bivad. So this was when the CCU was on the sixth floor. I'd run up there, look there, go rushing into his room, and there he was reading the Wall Street Journal, checking out his stocks to see how things were uh, going uh, that day. So bystander CPR then, by perfusion the heart, maintains ventricular fibrillation, protects against death, triples the chance of survival. And in Arizona, what we found is when the paramedics get there and there's not witnessed, 16% were in PF. If it was witnessed, 36. But if it was witnessed and bystander, 52%. So you can extend that window by bystander CPR. The next is the pre-hospital fave, and again, what was wrong with AHA guidelines? Well, it turns out that when we analyzed what the paramedics were doing, they were pressing on the chest half the time. Our paramedics were great. They were just following the guidelines. They were intubating, starting IV, rhythm analysis, stack shock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Halfway around the world, Professor Wick found the exact same thing. Paramedics were only a half of So again, we announced our intentions and we explained our rationale for why we changed the paramedics. Dan Newburn, the chief, Carl and I both regret that this guy didn't get as much credit for having the guts to hear what we say, listen to what we do, and say, okay, we're going to change. So Tucson was the first to change. So the first thing we said is, you don't intubate. Well, you can imagine Carl and I out talking to these paramedics. You could read their body language. We'd tell them not to intubate. I mean, they thought we were certifiably insane, I think. But based on our experience into the hospital, when I was a bit younger, we opened this hospital in November of uh, 1971, I ran to every cardiac arrest there was. And I noted that it took forever for the anesthesiologist to intubate. We now have data on that. Wang looked at 100 patients without a hospital. The median duration was 47 seconds. A third took over a minute, a fourth over three minutes. It kills people. And we know that as well because we now have association between pre-hospital attempts and discharge, and individuals with no endotracheal intubation attempted were 2.3 times more likely to have return of spontaneous circulation, and they were 5.5 times more likely to survive. So it was a good guess for us not to have them intubate. So if you perfuse the heart, it's more likely to resuscitate. The other thing that happens is when the heart fibrillates, the arterial volume shifts over to the venous side, and in one minute, the right ventricle doubles in size. And it produces constrictive pericarditis, because you got this pericardium there, and you whoop, all this volume. So even if you did sort of defibrillate too early, the Frank-Starling mechanism doesn't work. So you defibrillate first if the EMS witnessed the arrest, or if there's adequate 
CPR going in. And then again, for decades, the first step of the guidelines were stack shock. You know, you went, I can't remember, 150, 300, and then 360, something like that. And again, this was a long time. So we said 200 congestion, one shock, and then you can't look at the EKG, you can't feel for the pulse, you do another immediate 200 compressions. So 200 compressions, a single shot, don't look, don't feel, 200 more compression, and then evaluate. And then initially in Tucson, we did a bag mouth, gave aponym, and then after that we said follow the guidelines because we didn't want to write new guidelines, and besides, none of these people are going to survive anyway. So we just said follow the guidelines. Then Dr. Heidi pointed out death by hyperventilation. He sent a nurse, the paramedics, out, and he found that when the paramedics were there, they ventilated an average of 37 times per minute. And we actually pointed out that we had sent a nurse in this hospital around, uh, you know, in 1995, and they reported physicians. So you've all been there. The patients are intubated, got the back mouth, and you're so excited, and everybody's just squeezing the hell out of the bamboo bag, and the pressure in the chest is going like this. The venous return is being blocked. We reported we thought that was okay because, you know, ventilation is good, right? We now know it is bad. So when Mike Killam came down for Wisconsin and said, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. Nobody survives out of hospital cardiac arrest. I hear you're doing something different. So we started up there, but we said, how do we prevent hyperventilation? So we did passive ventilation. In other words, we got there. They couldn't intubate. They couldn't use a bag mouth, put in an oral pharyngeal airway, a non-rebreather bath, and go from there. So he started it, and about ever two or three months, he'd give me a call, and he'd say, man, this is great. We are getting saves here that our paramedics haven't had for years. And I said, well, Mike, you've got to get some data. He said, oh, I'm just an ER doc. Click. You know. So after the third or fourth time he called, all excited, I'm screaming at him over the phone, you've got to get some data. So he did. He looked at the survival three years where they were following the guidelines. With a shockable rhythm, 15% survival. Not too far from the 17.7 published. One year, 48%. We could not get this published. We sent it to the New England Journal, Lancet, JAMA, blah, 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 everything. They thought we were smoking pot or something. And finally, I sent it to a good journal. I went to Joe and I said, Joe, you really got to do us a favor. And so it was a published. Now, it turned out that they said 48% was a little much. It was more than them. And it probably turned out to be a little much because the three years, it was 39%. But to make a long story short, we presented this at Arizona when they did it, 38%. We presented it at Kansas City, Missouri when they did it, 38%. When we compare it against the rock group, uh, you could see it seems to be much better. So that's where we started with cardiocerebral resuscitation. So you'll notice that Carl and I are both gone a lot because when someone says they want to hear about it, we think it's important to learn about it because it makes a 
big difference. We have calculated that if they did in the United States what we've done in Arizona, that we would save 58,000 lives per year with this alone. So that's why we are so passionate about it. So anytime there's a grand round schedule and nobody is paying, you'll find that either Carl or I will uh, <laughs> volunteer to do it. So thank you. You've been listening to a session of Grand Rounds from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening. <laughs>